Morning, Illuminate. Good to be with you guys. Uh, as always, uh, if you're new, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Would love to have the opportunity to meet you uh, right after the service. Uh, as normal, I'm usually hanging out uh, right down here. Obviously, a huge weekend here in the valley uh, with Phoenix Open and all that. Um, anybody at the uh, 16th hole yesterday when the hole in one was made? Huh? Anybody there? Nobody wants to admit it, huh? <laughs> no, because it went from golf to WWE in about five seconds. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, we, we should probably make some, some Super Bowl predictions, but first, uh, how many of you are Rams fans? Okay, Terry. I'm sorry, Terry, to call you out like that. You, you thought you were going to get more support, brother. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, Bengals? Wow, a lot of apathy in the room, you know. I'm a Cardinals football and GCU basketball, man. That's it for me. And when it comes to the Super Bowl, it's all about the... Um, the buffalo chicken dip. So <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. All right, hey, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 4. So if you're new, uh, we've been in the uh, ancient text known as the book of Genesis, and we've been opening it up, we've been reading it, and we've been amazed <laughs> at how relevant it is to our own modern time. And so what we've, what we've discovered is that God is the creator of all things, <laughs> The fingerprints of God are everywhere. Okay? Um, how do we know that there is a God? Look at nature. You see design. You see order. You see complexity. The more complex the design, the more intelligent the creator. God creates a perfect environment, Garden of Eden. Eden literally means delight. Places humans, Adam and Eve, pinnacle of all his creation. Only humans are created in his image. Places them in this Garden lays down only one restriction, one restriction. God is a God of tremendous freedom, only one restriction, and they violate it. Why? Because there's a slithery creature that comes onto the scene. Later we find out that that is Satan, deceives Eve, they disobey God, and things begin to unwind in a big way. By the time we get to chapter 4, we see worship alongside murder. <laughs> it's like in the opening chapters of the Bible, what you see is like the first murder occurs. You would think in God's scheme, things would have this upward trend, but in fact, because sin has entered the world, things begin to unwind. Uh, and chapter four is just the beginning. Two chapters later, things get so jacked up that God actually presses the reset button. But this tells us how we got there. Now, um, we... Uh, we, we're going to get a big picture look at some things that um, some of you might be familiar with, all right? Some of you are, are probably fairly familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, but what you might not be familiar with is Jesus' take on it, Jesus' understanding of what's happening in this story, um, and, and, and also um, the fact that this story is actually about Jesus himself, you know, I've been saying pretty much each week that all of these stories that we read in the book of Genesis, they actually all point forward to Jesus. You say all of them? Yeah, actually all of them. All of them point forward to Jesus because this is a story about bloodshed. But it's also a story about the shed blood of Jesus. You say, how is that possible? Well, I'll explain it to you. Genesis chapter 4 Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. So whenever this Hebrew word for new is used and applied to humans, it always refers to a sexual union. 
It's a really uh, tender word, an intimate word. Now, our culture, our culture has a lot of different words that uh, we often use to describe sex. Uh, many of them are rude, right, and not at all tender or sensitive. None of them really captures well the bond of unity that is brought about through a sexual relationship, healthy sexual relationship in a marriage. And, and when that happens, this is the natural consequence here. And, and she conceived, Eve conceived, and bore Cain. And here's what she says about Cain. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which is good wording because she understands that everything that's been provided for them so far has been given to them for, by God, including this, this child. What's interesting is the word Cain sounds a lot like the Hebrew word quaintide. That's the Hebrew word for begotten. So literally, Eve has this experience. And remember, this is all new. This is the first, the first birth. And, and she begets a human. And she says, well, I'm going to name this child begotten. Now, Abel, well, excuse me, verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And the language here is really interesting because it allows for these two to possibly be twins. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He gets older and he, he, he becomes a rancher and Cain is a worker of the ground. He becomes a farmer. It's r remarkable how different your kids can be. In the course of time, perhaps at the end of the growing season, then we read about this event. Cain brought to the Lord an offering. And his offering was of the fruit of the ground, what he produces. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Kind of like the best of what he had. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering... But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry. How so? Well, you could see it on his face. It fell. So the Lord said to Cain, let's talk about what's going on inside you right now. Why are you angry? Think about what it is that's making you mad. And why has your face fallen? See, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, there's a way out of this, Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Like it's just on the other side of it, and its desire is contrary. It's against you, but you must rule over it. So Cain has a conversation with his brother. What they talked about, we don't, we don't know, but it doesn't alleviate any, anything that's going on inside Cain. So when they were in the field, Cain postures up. That's the language here. That's literally what's being said. Cain rose up against his brother, and he kills him. We don't know the specifics exactly, but based on the language, it would appear that Cain takes the proper position either with a club or a rock or something sharp, and it's a, it's violent. It's violent. And all of a sudden, the blood starts to leave Abel's body. Think about being Cain. He's there, and he's seeing Abel struggle, and his life literally leaves him as the blood just pours out of his body. And this is where the language gets really interesting. Let me read it to you. 
The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Kind of this Garden of Eden language, you know, when Adam and Eve sin, they hide, and God says, where are you? It's not like God doesn't know what's going on. He's getting them to think about what they've just done. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I don't, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And if you're sensing a bad attitude, you'd be right. He's also lying because he knows exactly where the body is. Cain's pride has been wounded. He's acting out. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's bloods, bloods. In the Hebrew, it's plural. What that indicates is that this was really violent. His bloods crying out to me from the ground. Consequences. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So this story is filled with first, right? It's the first birth. We talked about this a little bit last week. Imagine being Eve. Her belly starts to grow, and she's like, what? It's all new. Like, when is this going to stop? And then this life, this life comes out of her. And she's been told as part of the consequence upon her that there would be pain in childbirth. She's experiencing the pain, perhaps especially so. She's giving birth to twins. And she's holding this little life, little babies, and it's just just an amazing, wonderful, it's been very painful. And remember, as we learned last week, part of the Consequence also is that there will be ongoing pain in motherhood. <laughs> it's not just a physical pain. So someone once said that having a child is like taking your heart and placing it outside your body. And wherever that child goes, there goes your heart. And when people ask you, how are you doing? You're only doing as well as the child that's suffering the most. There's this ongoing Pain. All of this is, is a consequence now. Remember I told you, things begin to unwind and you're, you, you begin to see it in every relationship, even amongst the family, because this is now a dysfunctional family. There are words said to the serpent, which we find out later, we know definitively is Satan, and what he's told is the offspring of a woman is going to destroy you. It's going to be this epic battle that goes down, and you're not going to give up without a fight. You're going to deliver a wound, but the offspring of a woman is going to destroy you. Well, what is Eve holding? Her offspring. And again, again, we mentioned last week, what are the expectations? Every parent has these huge expectations on their kids and their hopes and their dreams, and she's thinking, am I holding the deliverer? Is this the one that's going to crush that? This is my offspring. I've never experienced it before. This God, maybe this is it. This is it. And, and, and is she thinking, this is it. This is the deliverer. And in fact, it turns out to be she's holding a murderer. Uh, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, two boys raised in the same home and two very different outcomes. But for now, there's nothing but joy and new experiences and these little feet running around and they get to watch them grow and there's work and there's worship. And as the boys get older, each one takes an affinity to something different. One is drawn toward the land, the other is drawn toward animals, both very noble occupations. 
And there's, there's a sense that God should be worshipped. The creator of the heavens and, and the earth should be worshipped. And by the way, we were created to be worshipers. We all worship something. The word worship literally means to ascribe worth to something. We all ascribe worth, ultimate worth, to something, whether it be a relationship, a thing, an item, a material possession. We all worship something. Where do you think that comes from? God has implanted that within every human heart. The challenge is most often it's misguided. We end up worshiping all the wrong things. Also in worship, there's a sense that sacrifice is involved because if you really value something, then you're willing to give something up for it. And and so Cain brings something of his, uh, Abel brings his, and and each, you know, right, has their own thing that they produce basically with their own hands. But God accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain's. Why? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but we have some idea, perhaps, Some commentators believe that because Abel's was a blood sacrifice, it was more worthy. It says that he gave of his firstborn, which would be the the best of what he has. You're taking a risk when you give the firstborn because you're not sure there's going to be a secondborn, right? And if the firstborn doesn't have any blemish or anything like that, then what comes next might not be as good as what you're giving to God first. So you're really trusting that God will continue to provide for you. There's no indication that the text says that Cain gave of what was first for him. We don't know exactly, but we do know exactly how God feels about it. Verse 5, for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, and this made Cain exceedingly angry. Now, Cain's response holds the clue to what's going on here. Because if his heart was in the right place, when God said, Cain, let's talk about this. You can make this right. Notice God doesn't say, you messed up, man, and there's no second chance for you. He says, you can make this right, Cain. Cain, you can turn this thing around. And Cain responds with, am I my brother's keeper? It's almost as if what Cain did to Abel was actually more directed at God because the attitude now is against God. Uh, there's, there's this uh, principle at play here. You see it all throughout the Bible. I'm not so sure that the problem was the sacrifice itself. The real issue was the condition of Cain's heart. And you see it in his response. Worship is always about the heart. Jesus talks so much about this. There's this famous story about this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the wrong question. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. But Jesus is like, all right, we'll play. Um, What are the commandments? Don't murder. Don't steal. And the rich young ruler says, awesome. I've kept all of the commandments since my youth. Doing great. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the, and, and the young ruler is shocked. <laughs> and the text tells us he leaves and he's dismayed. He's depressed and discouraged. Now, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying, you have to make yourself poor in order to have eternal life? No, that's not what he's saying at all. You see, for that young man, his God or his idol was his wealth. If it was something else, let's say maybe some relationship, as it was with the woman at the well, then Jesus would have called that out too. 
You see, the object of his highest affection was not God. It was what he owned. And he was worshiping it. See, when we went through our BSD series, we said, Jesus really, he's not really after your money. He's after your heart. And very often, your heart is so attached to your money. Well, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He's not after the money, he's after your heart, but your money, quite possibly, is the quickest way to capture your heart. That's why Jesus is after it. So, um, you know, there's this other teachable moment that um, Jesus gives about worship. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. This is the greatest sermon in history. Of course, it's given by Jesus himself. He says this, so if you are offering, now picture, picture this. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you've offended a brother Leave your gift there before the altar. Just leave it there. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Here's why. It's going to go well for you and for the family, the church family, because if there's this discord between us, especially when we come together in worship, it's, it's not really reflective of what God wants for his family. He says, reconcile quickly with your adversary while you are still on the way to court. Otherwise, he may hand you over to the judge. Judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be, may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, Jesus says, don't come into this place lifting your hands to me. If those same hands are lifted against others in anger, in self-righteousness, in condemnation, in judgment. Don't come in here and, and lift your voice to me if that same voice is being used to gossip, to tear others apart. Because you see what that is, is it's insincere and it's, it's hypocritical. And what God wants is a pure, genuine, you know, we wouldn't want that in the relationships that we have with each other, but sometimes we assume, hey, maybe it's okay for us to work this way with God. Worship is always about the heart. Now, John is this guy that had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry, and he gives us his own personal commentary on what went wrong with Cain. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So you might be thinking, okay, now wait. What John is saying is that we have the potential to be murderers? Come on. Doesn't that sound like an overstatement? Don't be like Cain. In what way? Well, don't be a murderer. Yeah, like, we're, we're going to be, like, I'm going to be a murderer, Right? You already are, and I'll prove it to you. What is the attitude behind murder? I'll tell you what it is. It is to regard a life as being worthless. Don't answer out loud. But have you ever in your mind looked at somebody and thought, I wish you weren't around? Let me press in on it a little bit. What if you had the ability to wish someone away with absolutely no consequence to yourself? Would you do it? I'm glad none of you are nodding your heads no. You might be thinking it in your mind. I would never do something like that. I did it about 10 times this week with Phoenix Open Traffic. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is be real. Be honest. If you had the ability to just wish somebody, someone, see, see, what, isn't this interesting? 
What's being exposed now is that there really is an attitude of murder within each one of us. We just lack the opportunity to act on it and get away with it. You know, maybe we don't, we're, we're physically, we're repelled by blood, but if we could just imagine it, if we could just think it and make it happen. Um, some of you might be doubting. So Jesus actually speaks to this again in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, quoting the Old Testament, you shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. And everybody says, yes, those murderers need to get what's coming to them. And then he goes on, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Liable to the, talk about the council, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh-oh. You see what Jesus has done? He's taken murder and anger and insult and said, same consequence. Here's why. Because it's in your heart. See, elsewhere he'll say, look, guys, here, here's the, men and women, here's, the, here's the, the real issue. When you view pornography, that actually makes you an adulterer. You know, if you look on that person to lust, what you've done is you're already there mentally. You've adopted the attitude, that should be mine. See, so what Jesus does is he just, it's like the Bible says, it's like a, a really sharp sword that divides it and lays it right open, your heart. And it forces you to look in, inside and go, wow, um, maybe I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. But then on the other hand, the gospel quickly says to you, yeah, that's true. You're worse than you think you are, but you're far more loved than you realize because Jesus meets that. He meets you right where you are. And there's, you get this even in seed form here because God very graciously comes to Cain. He says, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. In the very next verse, Jesus actually speaks about the heart. We read it earlier. This is the full context. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't bring me words of adoration if you're bringing others words of contempt. Cain had the opportunity to make it right. You do well, you'll be accepted. You don't do well, sin is crouching at your door. It's going to own you, man. It's going to own you. But you must rule over it. Cain, you can turn it around. Um, what's interesting is, um, well, we should probably have this conversation about anger. Because some of us struggle with anger. How do you deal with it? The Bible speaks to it. There's a couple of verses, one you're probably more familiar with than the other. And if you've ever had any marriage counseling, you're probably really familiar with it. Uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So a couple of things to notice. Number one, it's possible to be angry and, and not sin. Okay? You hear that? It's possible to, to be angry and not sin. Um, it's all about what makes you angry and what you do with your anger. Jesus is a great example because there's this, there's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he's approaching the temple and he's making this observation and there are these guys here who are supposed to be facilitating the worship of God on behalf of God's people, making it easy, ushering them into the throne of God on the temple grounds. And what's happening is they're taking advantage of people. They're robbing people. 
And Jesus gets angry. And he overturns the tables. And he makes a, a whip. And, and, and he, he's, he's getting the job done. He creates quite a scene. I remember when I graduated from seminary, you know, you have your oral final, and they can ask you any question they want to from this book, and it's kind of big. And I was asked, explain the anger of Jesus, and I didn't answer it well. I know how to answer it now. See, what is it that made Jesus mad? Sin. What is it that makes you and I mad? Selfishness. 99% 99% of the time, the thing that makes me angry is when I don't get my way. I guess I'm the only one. Thanks for the stone-cold looks. <laughs> I'm the only one, right? And then what happens is I act impulsively on the anger and relationships get damaged, <laughs> right? Relationships get damaged, and, and I end up saying and doing things that I later regret, and sometimes it takes a while for those things to get mended. So be angry and do not sin. What is it that causes you to be angry, and then what do you do with it? You see, anger is a God-given emotion. It's given to you for the purpose of correcting a wrong, but in the right way. That's exactly what Jesus does. So there's this other verse, okay? Uh, We see it in Psalm chapter 4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians. Why? Because it's the same six words. Paul is quoting the psalmist. But here's how the psalmist finishes. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So Paul says, hey, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? Well, um, again, marriage counselors might say something to you. Well, hey, if you're, you know, if you're married, make sure you don't go to bed angry, right? Like resolve it before the sun sets. Like if, if the sun is going to set at 6.30 and your spouse does something at 6.25, you have five minutes to deal with that. And if you don't, you're in violation of what the Scripture says, right? Then you have this other verse that says, no, it's okay. Go to bed. Go to bed. You're angry. Go to bed. But ponder. Think think. See, they're not saying two separate things. They're actually both saying the same thing. Here's what you do when you're angry. Stop. Think about it. What is making you angry? What is the godly response to that anger? Is the source of your anger self-centeredness? If it is, you got to see it. You got to see it for that. If it's a righteous anger, then how do I deal with it in a godly way? Ponder. Think about it. Take a day or a night, sleep on it rather than act out of emotion in the moment, which will cause you to do something you will regret, and we can all relate to that. In other words, what's being said is examine your heart. Notice also, Paul says that (laughs) this is a great irony of anger. See, some people use anger as a form of control. You ever notice that? They get really angry, and and they, they amp it up. And they ratchet everything up and they they posture up. And because what they're trying to do is control the conversation or the situation with a with a like a strong force, you know, like that's control. And what Paul says, you're so naive. Because you see, when you act like that, you're the puppet. You're the one being controlled. You know, every time you get angry, you're just like a little puppet on a string, and Satan's just working the strings. 
and you're his little puppet to do what he wants to do, to cause destruction in, in the lives of those around you, which will ultimately come back on you as well. But see, you're blinded by all of that in your anger. You don't see all that. You want to control the situation, but you see, you're being controlled. The key is to be mastered by God. If you're controlled by God, then you won't be controlled by anger. All right, so we read the first part of 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Let's read the second part. Um, this, this gives us insight into why, or let me put it this way. What, you ever notice this? What causes uh, innocent people to, uh, be, to suffer, you know, at the hands of those who are not innocent? You ever notice that? Like, like why is it that sometimes, like, evil people rise up against innocent people? Well, Look at what John says. And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers are righteous. So we see a lot of this going down in our society right now. People who do evil will not tolerate those who do good. Let me say that again. People who do evil will not tolerate those who do good. Jesus prepared his disciples for this. He said, they're going to hate you. They hate me, and if you follow in my footsteps, you're going to stand for the things they stand against. You're going to stand against the things they stand for, and you're going to be hated. So what does Jesus say? Pick up a sword and fight? No. He says, just be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer. Do right. Act well, but be prepared for persecution. So Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable, really, because of the condition of his heart, proud, jealous, influenced by his evil deeds. Now, one of the big lessons here is that God is not satisfied with external acts of worship. He sees right through to the heart. God gives Cain the consequences, verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So when you work the ground, Cain, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. It's going to be more difficult for you now. Uh, and you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain hears this and he's like, ah, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain doesn't want to be held accountable. Again, what we read in these opening chapters is so true. It's what we see in the human heart today. I love what James Boyce said. He said, one of the clearest marks of sin is our almost innate desire to excuse ourselves and complain if we are judged in any way. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so, Cain. I'm going to be gracious and merciful to you. Here's your second chance. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should, should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, which means literally to wander, which is east of Eden. This is super gracious of God. It's not like God says, man, you made your mistake. You blew it. You're out of the picture. No more. I'm done with you. He says, no, Cain, I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to give you a second chance. We're going to learn from the mistakes. Tons of speculation as to what this mark is without going into detail. We, we, we have no idea exactly. Um, ancient rabbis believe that, that this uh, mark was actually a dog um, that protected Cain. The text just doesn't explicitly say. Whatever the case, God offers him protection, giving him a second chance in a new place. But within the next two chapters, things go from bad to worse. In fact, Cain's offspring will essentially boast about how wicked he is. And then God decides to go, reset. This is how we get there. Now, I've been saying all along that Genesis points forward to Jesus. 
How so? Well, listen to the words of the author from Hebrews as he describes the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, he says, you all have come to Jesus. You've all come. And the book of Hebrews was written to a bunch of Jews who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah. He says, you've all come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant. The temptation was to go back to Judaism and practice the old covenantal ways. They're like, no, 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 Jesus has something so much better, this new covenant. And then he says this, you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's he talking about? Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what, what was the blood of Abel crying out? He's crying out, justice! My brother has killed me! Bring me justice! And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus' blood, as he shed it on the cross, is also crying out. But it's crying out something much better. It's not crying for justice. It's crying forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now that's a better word. Because you see, on the cross, the love of God and the justice of God meet together. And what that equals is the forgiveness of God because the blood of Jesus paid the price for your sins. Where are you at on this one? <laughs> There's something in here for everybody. Could be an issue of anger. It could be the posture of your heart in worship. Maybe you're here and you're like, I, is God a God of second chances? Second, third, fourth, fifth. God never gives up on you. God never gives up on you. And I'm, I was about to say, don't give up on yourself. Give up on yourself. God doesn't give up, give up on yourself. What I mean by that is stop trying to earn your way to God. See, that was the restraining ruler. What must I do? If you think it's about what you do, you can't be good enough. That's why the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. And just a simple prayer, Father, in this moment, will your spirit speak so loudly and clearly to every heart in the room? Once again, the text is rich. It reveals the human heart, and it also reveals, God, your love for each one of us. We're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We're so grateful that the blood of Jesus is so much better. Father, we ask that our hearts would be in the right place. Lord, either through confession, repentance, even in this moment, we would get back to what is the heart of worship because it is all about you and what you've done. God, clearly you've proven your love for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Father, I pray that we would worship you in the full expression of that. Lord, forgive us as we've offended others. Lord, will you give us the courage to go back and make it right if it needs to be made right so that our, our worship can be unhindered and even in ourselves we won't feel the hypocrisy. We thank you for those opportunities. We thank you for your love. 
We pray it all in the name of the one who makes it all possible. And his name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.